to the king of ages, immortal, invisible. The only by asking you who is the worst sinner ever. There are some good names in the running. I suspect some of us would bring out the great figures of history, those who have built concentration camps, extermination ovens, who've stoked the fires to kill innocent millions. Others of us might think of those who have started wars, invaded peoples, pillaged countries. We might think of those who throw bombs into crowds of innocent people. We might think of those who take a little baby's life where the first breath is the last. And we know how reprehensible these people are. We know how utterly despicable a person would have to be to do those kinds of things to multiply murder upon murder but yet then we think about those folks who are involved in immorality who advance an agenda that is destructive to society that enslaves people in an endless cycle of desire and lust and telling them all the while that this is natural, normal, and that you ought to celebrate the fact that you're suffering the way you are? We might add to that list those who have been uncaring towards children, and who have either abandoned them physically or abandoned them emotionally. So let's make a list. Just start in your own mind. Make the list of the people that you think are on the top ten. Top ten sinners of all time, all right? Just make that list. Let me help you out a little bit. Maybe we should include somebody like the patriarchs of the Bible. You read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what do you find? You find sin after sin after sin. You find incest. You find deceit. You find fraud. On and on it goes. If that's not enough for you, let's put there King David. King David was one who, out of the lust of his heart, engaged in adultery, and when that wasn't enough, engaged in murder, trying always to satisfy himself. Maybe David should be on that list. So, well, what, what's going on with that? Because the patriarchs, after all, are the patriarchs. Uh, they, they are the fathers of the Old Testament faith. And, and this David guy, don't you remember? He was the man after God's own heart. And yet it was David who said, My sin is ever before me. So go ahead and make your list. Let me suggest somebody else you might want to put on that list, Adam and Eve. I mean, their sin was pretty small, but its effect was kind of big. I mean, their, their sin was pretty small that they uh, ate the fruit salad before the main course. Uh, you know, but, you know they, they, they just were a little bit hungry. None of the rest of you can identify with it, but I can, looking at something. No, you shouldn't eat it. Have promised yourself you'll never eat it. Even told your wife you wouldn't eat it. She'll never find out I ate it. <laughs> and so Adam and Eve partook of the fruit because it seemed like a good idea to them. And when they sinned, they brought sin and death upon the entire human race. You might want to put them on the list.
Wouldn't be a good list without Judas Iscariot. You know, Judas Iscariot, the one who walked with Jesus, saw miracles, participated in this great ministry. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve inner circle members with Jesus. And yet when the time came, he thought that he could make more out of his life by selling out on Christ and betraying him 30 pieces of silver. And as a result, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect sinless man, was crucified. Let's put him on the list. By the way, the last two folks on the list are, are kind of in interesting. Nobody knew God better than they did. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Father. Adam and Eve knew what it was to have a tight, intimate fellowship with God, and yet they sinned. Judas Iscariot got to see Jesus, knew what he looked like, knew the lilt of his voice, the timbre of his voice, knew what it was to walk in his footsteps physically, and yet he sinned. And so these are pretty bad sinners. Rank them as you will, give them each points, uh, as it were, uh, take a little bit of time, and then we're going to uh, talk about the worst sinner ever. Got your list? Let me suggest to you that you are the worst sinner ever. Time out. Okay. This sin thing has gone too far. It was, to start with, a little uncomfortable. I mean, it was all right as long as you're talking about sin of people back in the Bible days because Bible stories are supposed to have sin. We all know about that. And so if you want to talk about sin of Bible characters, that's fine. If you want to talk about sin of these reprehensible people that we all, uh, shall we say, don't love, uh, we don't hate them, do we? But anyway, of, of these, these characters in history, fine, talk about their sins. Those are awful, reprehensible sins. Let's talk about those. But the moment you start to talk about my sin, this is called meddling. This is called sticking your nose where it has no business. This preacher is why people make fun of you. Because you sit up there, stand up there in the pulpit, you wag your finger, you tell people they're sinners, and oh, wow. It couldn't possibly be true. Don't you know that my sin is actually just a personality quirk? It's what makes me endearing. It's why you like me. Don't you know that my sin is a result of my upbringing and my childhood and it's buried back there with the psychological trauma and the engagements that I had with parents, with authority figures, with caregivers, and as a result of that I have been scarred emotionally and psychologically. So the things that I do, yeah, sometimes they're pretty bad, but all the time it's somebody else's fault. It's not my sin, it's theirs. You know, really we don't want to talk about this sin thing because when you start talking about this sin thing, it's really a very complex matrix of dynamics having to do with societal structures that need changing. Don't blame me, it's my environment. Let me suggest to you that you are the worst sinner ever. Ever. Now... As I say that, you do know that you have some pretty stiff competition. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, said the following statement is faithful and worthy of all acceptance. He said that the following statement is 
um, pistos is the Greek word. He says it's, it's faithful, it's reliable. The following statement is something that you can take to the bank. This statement that I'm going to make is so true and is so uh, evident and is so powerful. This statement is faithful. No matter how you apply it in your life, you will come out on the right side of the question. And he said, this statement is worthy of all acceptance. That means you ought to embrace it. Not just listen to it, consider it, endure it. But this statement is so true, you ought to embrace it. In other words, when you get to the testimony meeting, you go to a, a testimony meeting. We don't have enough of those these days, but uh, you get there and they say, who wants to testify? And they all look at you and say, stand up and testify. Here's what you can say. This statement is faithful. This statement is true. This statement is worthy of all acceptance. It means that you ought to accept it. Everybody accepts it. So when you stand up, make this statement as your testimony. I testify to the following, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Greek word there is protos. Protos means number one, top of the list. You look at all the sinners of history, all the sinners you know about, and my name is at the top of the list, Paul said. This statement is true. Christ came to the world to save sinners. And example number one, right here. Now, what did Paul mean by that? I mean, he, he was a man who was acquainted with theology of sin. He could explain to you the ins and outs of, of a sinful experience. Of just uh, the, the paragraph ahead of this, he was talking to Timothy about uh, how the law is profitable to show us our sin. And he mentioned a few of those sins, things like being unholy and godless and irreligious, uh, rebellious. Uh, disobedient. He also said that uh, some of the really rank sins that inhabit the human race are things like murder, things like the practice, the engagement, the embracing of a homosexual lifestyle. It's Paul. He said things uh, like this are inhabiting the world. He, he talked about striking your mother and striking your father. Uh, the, the Greek words there are really interesting. They have to do with literally uh, sort of um, beating up father and mother. Uh, some translations actually say killers of father and killers of mother. I think striking might be a better term because uh, I, I don't envision this as the sin of, you know, uh, sitting in the bedroom and when they sneak around the corner, pow, uh, I think it's more like the, the person who took mom and dad into the home. They were a little elderly, a little frail, and really irritating. You won't understand this till I move in with you guys. <laughs> you know, and I'm a little bit demanding. Mom and dad move in, and you know something? It takes a lot of work to take care of mom and dad. You've got to feed them and clothe them and take care of them, and they're always going to the doctor. I have to take off work to take them all the time, and pretty soon you start to lose your patience, and pretty soon you start to snipe at them. You start to say things to them, and you start to almost belittle them right to their face. And if you're really good at it, you actually start to hit them. You know, the abuse of the elderly is not unknown. That's what the word meant. Uh, and so uh, Paul had all kinds of things like that. And he said, uh, things that are just contrary to, 
to the sense of the gospel and the righteousness of God. So he'd already mentioned a large list of sins. And so when he said, I'm the chief of sinners, you know, there, there's something called sin, and Jesus died for the sinners, I'm the chief sinner. Um, he had some things very much in mind. But then he, he, he had also said, but look, here's the sin that I was guilty of because Jesus poured out mercy on me and gave me a ministry to proclaim Christ even though. And then he says, here's my top three sins. What are your top three sins? Anybody want to share? You know, but just think about that. What are the top three sins in your life? The things that you've struggled with so long, the besetting sins. The sins that just, uh, if they leave, they leave only for a season and they seem to come back. You never quite get a handle on it. Sins that have been destructive in your life, your life and of others, are the top three sins. Paul said, here's my top three. He said, I was a blasphemer. That word means, I was somebody who slandered God. I was somebody who spoke ill of God, put God down. I was somebody who made others think less of God than he deserves. I blasphemed, I slandered God. Now you say, Paul, when did you possibly ever do that? You were raised as a good, law-abiding, pharisaical Jew? You had a zeal about you. You, 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 you loved God. When did you ever slander God and blaspheme against God? And Paul would have said, I did it every time I rejected Jesus Christ. I did it every time I told somebody that Jesus is not Messiah, He is not Lord, He is not Son of God, He is not Savior. Every time I said that Jesus Christ was only a man, a criminal, who deserved to be put to death. Every time I told you that Jesus Christ is nothing, I was blaspheming against God. Now, let me tell you something about blasphemy. It's a peculiar sin of the religious person. It's the, it's the person who claims to know and love God who can really blaspheme. I mean, the, the, the person who doesn't care about God. No, but they can, they can cuss a blue streak. They swear creatively, whatever that means. The person who can weave into every conversation, every sentence, every other word, some profanity, some way of, of putting down the things of God. It's the, it's the person who rejects God and, 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 they, and they, they, they laugh at the people of God. Now that person who, who doesn't even claim to know God, blasphemer, yes, but you know we kind of expect it, don't we? We kind of think that's what's going to happen. But here's what happens when someone who claims to be a child of God begins to blaspheme. And think about it the next time you take the Lord's name in vain. And think about it the next time that you use the name of God for some piddling, trifling upset in your life. The one who claims to know God and yet treats God as if he were nothing blasphemes in a way that the world sits up, takes notice and said, wow, claims to love God, blasphemes, rejects God, doesn't live it out in his life. Now that's noteworthy. Maybe I should just not even think about it ever again. And the blasphemy, blasphemy bad enough itself, is tied to a witness that draws people away from God. And Paul said, that's what I was. I was one of the good people. And I was blaspheming against God. And not only that, but I was a persecutor of the church. I told people that if you believe in Jesus Christ, I'll make sure you go to jail. 
And so every time you go out to witness and you share the love of God in Christ Jesus with somebody, I'm going to make sure I find that person and say, look, if you accept this Jesus and you, and you claim that he is Lord and you say that he is the Son of God and that he's your Savior, you say that and you will spend quite a bit of time thinking about your decision in jail. See, he was not only throwing Christians in jail, he was using it as a weapon to sabotage the work of the gospel. And he says, I, I was an insolent opponent. That, that's sort of the picture of not only did I oppose the Christians, not only did I oppose the body of Christ, but I sort of took delight in it. You know, and when I arrested somebody, I, I kind of roused them about it and I made fun of them. Because that's who I was. But God poured out his mercy on me and gave me a ministry. You can just see Paul sometimes sitting in church. Before church starts, while everybody else is talking, and that's fine, Paul's just sitting in his pew and he's saying, Oh God, how is it possible? How is it possible that in a few moments you're going to use somebody like me to exalt Jesus? I think that blew him away. I think that was incomprehensible to Paul because he said it was an outpouring of grace. King James calls it an abundant grace poured out upon him. By the way, John Bunyan, you remember John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, a man who had spent many, many years in prison because he preached the gospel and the government didn't quite like that. Our turn is coming next. But uh, one time while he was in prison, he took that time to write his autobiography. And he entitled the story of his life, Abundant, Abounding Grace for the Chief of Sinners. He was a man who knew what it was that God had to overcome in our lives to bring us out of the depths of rebellion into a personal walk with Christ. And I think the same thing's happening here with Paul. He says, look, here are those sins, those awful, reprehensible sins that all those people do. But let me tell you, the sins that I have in my heart and in my life that are part of my resume are things like blasphemy and persecution and, and things like being an insolent opponent the, uh, of the gospel. He says, that's what's in my life, but God poured out an abundance of grace on me. Grace overflowing just keeps coming and coming and coming. And it flowed into my life, and he chose me for a ministry. And that's why, Timothy, I want you to know this testimony, this word, this saying, this logos is the Greek, this word for you, it is both faithful and it's worthy of being embraced in your life because I embrace it in mind that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief of sinners. Paul couldn't get over it. Just couldn't get past that. Now, you know, what's, what's the value of this? I mean, when Paul accepted Christ, he quit blaspheming. When Paul accepted Christ, he quit persecuting the church. He became persecuted himself. When Paul accepted Christ, he was no longer insolent towards the gospel. He was no longer opponent to the gospel. His life radically changed. It, 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 it turned around in so many ways. And you see such clear evidence of the grace of God working in his life as we read about him in the book of Acts and read his letters. And yet Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Some have said, well, what Paul's saying by that is, well, God poured out his grace upon my life, but you know, 
we're all human, I still sin, you know, and it, you know, sin is just there, and don't worry about it, don't fret it. After all, um, after all, this thing is in my ear, and you'll get over it. But uh, after all, the, uh, uh, the, the, the thing about Jesus is he has to forgive you. That's sort of like his job. And so uh, uh, some have said that because Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Let me tell you what I think he means. That, that verb, am, it's, it's in the present tense. Um, it's sort of like my telling you that I am a student of Duke University. I'm a part of the class of 1974. Don't hold it against me, but it happens to be a historical fact. But if I tell you, you know, I'm, I'm a student at Duke University. I don't go to class, didn't then, but, uh, you, know, I, uh, you know, I don't go to class and I, and, and I don't uh, do the lectures and take the tests. I'm not on campus. But it's a part of my biography. And when I tell you the story of my educational career, I say, well, I'm, I'm a student of Duke University. I'm a graduate of, student of Duke University. I think that's what he means. He's saying, look, as you look at my, my resume, as you look at this, and you say, where does Paul fit into the scale of sinners? Where does he fit into, into the work that Jesus Christ has done? You will find Paul at the top of the list, A number one. He's protos. He's the first. He's the chief of all the sinners there have ever been. Now, I want to tell you that uh, there are a lot of verses in the Bible that I don't understand, but there are no verses in the Bible that I reject. I believe every Bible, on, every verse on every page and every chapter of every book is the Word of God coming to us as if directly spoken. So every verse is the Word of God. I do not doubt a single verse. I don't understand a lot of verses, but I don't doubt any, any verses. But I want to tell you if there was any verse that I want to argue with, it's this one right here because, Paul, I can give you a run for your money. You may have said that you're the chief of sinners, but, Paul, you never saw my life. You haven't seen what I've done, and you don't see the thoughts that roll through my head. And you don't see how often I've disappointed our Lord. You don't see how many times I've failed. Paul, you call yourself the chief of sinners. I'm not going to argue with you. But you know, I'm going to claim the same title. The chief of sinners. And let me suggest to you that you are the chief of sinners. About uh, four and a half years ago now, uh, we opened this building, the, uh, the sanctuary building. Uh, we'd gotten the pulpit furniture and all the pews. They're made by a company that makes cheap uh, office furniture, but they make great pews and pulpits. But uh, uh, we, we had the room done and the carpet laid and had never had a service in here and we were getting ready for the first service and uh, I met uh, back in uh, uh, next to the office uh, there's a little conference room there and I met with some of the deacons and we prayed together um, and a marvelous time of prayer and uh, when uh, we finished praying and they said well where are you going to sit because we don't have the thrones up here the uh, pulpit chairs up here so um, you know I, I can't sit here you know and engage you know what's going on from from here and they said well where are you going to sit and I don't know why, but, but four and a half years, it, it, it just came to me. I said, well, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit in the mourner's bench. Now, you may not know what a mourner's bench is. Um, well, about 190 years ago, churches started putting in mourner's benches. Uh, it came out of the revival movement. 
The idea of a mourner's bench was that it was a, a pew or chair. Sometimes it was just a roped-off area in the church. But oftentimes it was just a hard bench. You couldn't put a pad on something called a mourner's bench. And so uh, uh, you, you were, the, the idea was that when you came to church and you fell under conviction of your sin and it became apparent to you that your life was in rebellion against the will of God and you started to sense the horror of that, sense, uh, of that sin in your life, the mourner's bench was there so that you might go sit on the mourner's bench and grieve over your sins. This is why I tell you that you're the chief of sinners because there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There is a sorrow over sin that leads us to search for the Savior and to embrace the grace of God by faith. There is a sorrow and a grieving over the way that we have abused, mistreated, and mishandled the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes us to search out the work of the Holy Spirit that we might be reclaimed for the work of the gospel. See, the mourner's bench was a place you came because you were grieving over sin. It was abused sometimes in, in practices and manipulated. I know that. But here's the neat thing about it. When you sat on the mourner's bench, God's people, if they were God's people at all, began to pray for you. And they began to search and seek the Holy Spirit for you. And when it was done right, they would come and they would pray for you and pray for you and pray for you. And they would pray until the Holy Spirit came down and got a hold of your life and turned you around. Now that's, that's my understanding of the mourner's bench. I know the other historical aspects of it. But, uh, so when the deacon said to me, where are you going to sit? I said, I'm going to sit on the mourner's bench. Do you know where the mourner's bench is in this church? Do you know where it is? right about where you are. You sit in the same spot every Sunday, basically. You didn't know you were sitting on the mourner's bench. I can tell you the official mourner's bench is right down here. It's on the left, very front row. It's the worst seat in the house. That's the mourner's bench. And I can't tell you how often as I sat on the mourner's bench. I have felt the people of God praying for me. When you see me sit over there, you just say to yourself, there's a man who's unworthy to fill the pulpit. When you see me sitting over there, you say, there's a man who's not up to the task of sharing Jesus Christ. When you see me sitting on the mourner's bench, pause and pray for me like you never have before. Because that's the mourner's bench. Because I'm the chief of sinners. And I'll pray for you. You know, one of, the, one of the things I've noticed about deeply devoted, committed Christians who are living every moment, every day for Christ, the one thing I've noticed about them is they have a tremendous joy in the gospel and a tremendous freedom. And they are not bound by the shackles and the chains of sin any longer. I, I notice that people who love Christ, the more they love Him, the more freedom and joy they have in their life. I do notice that. But I notice this too, that the more a person loves Jesus Christ, the more sensitive they are to sin and the more heinous it is to them. 
The problem is we take our eyes off Jesus, we love him a little bit less, and sin becomes a little more tolerable. But when you love Jesus a lot, sin gets to you, and it really bothers you. Most of you remember Papa Dewey. Some of you don't, but he, Papa Dewey was like uh, God's gift to this church. Um, if he's sort of a, um, a conduit whereby the grace of God poured into the lives of children, especially boys, and um, just a stellar example of what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ. I remember um, on his 85th birthday, it happened to be a Sunday, I believe, um, but that Sunday he came into my office during the Sunday school hour. Uh, normally he was teaching a children's class for uh, children who wanted to know uh, how to be saved and how to ask Jesus into their heart. Uh, but this Sunday, uh, it was sort of a break between classes, and, and so he spent all morning in my office, and he told me about how he became a Christian. And he told me about how he had lived a rough life. He was in the Coast Guard on a buoy tender and, and all that. And he told me how one day he went to church, and then the pastor asked him if he wanted Jesus. I'll shorten the story. He said yes. And from that moment on, his life belonged to Jesus. He gave up. He told me. And I know it from seeing his life. He gave up the smoking. He gave up the drinking. He gave up the cussing. A little while later, his, his crew came to him on the boat. They said, Chief, what's wrong with you? What do you mean, what's wrong? You don't cuss at us anymore. He said, well, let me... I came to this man named Jesus, and he happens to be, you know, the Lord of my life, and he just started explaining to them. Okay, so, so Dewey's sharing that with me because he was 35 years old when he accepted Jesus Christ, and he was 85 when he was talking to me. He said, Pastor, this is 50 years of knowing Jesus. And then we went into the room to pray together with the deacons. And Dewey, as a, was our custom, always prayed first. And he started his prayer that day in a way that I had never heard him pray before. You know how people pray a lot the same? You, know, you, you sort of knew Papa Dewey's prayers. But this morning he prayed something that I never heard him pray before. He said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not the man I used to be. He said, Lord, I thank you that that 35-year-old man back there has been put to death in Christ. And I have new life in him by the power of the resurrection. There is not just power in the gospel, but when you love Jesus and you walk with him, you never forget where you came from. And you never forget what it took for him to lift you up from where you were to put you where you are. So Paul says... Out of an abundance of grace, I was given this ministry. And so I can give you this testimony, and I pray it's your testimony, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am chief, I'm foremost, I'm the first. And you know, one of the things about Paul as he writes, and, and, and I'll end with this, is that he... Uh, uh, Sort of gets into these things where he's describing what God has done for him. And you can almost see him, uh, he probably dictated these uh, letters to an amanuensis. Amanuensis is a word that will appear on your SAT exam. It means secretary. 
So uh, he probably uh, was, was dictating this, and as he's dictating the letter to the, to, uh, for Timothy to read, he starts saying, yeah, and, and you know, but, but Jesus died for sinners, and I'm the chief of sinners, and there was just mercy poured out on me, and look what God has done with my life. He shows that he is patient with a blasphemer, and patient with a persecutor, and patient with an insolent opponent. He showed that he is patient with the chief of sinners until that moment that he reaches down, convicts me of sin, pulls me up, gives me faith in Christ, and I'm a new man in Jesus. He said he's, he's demonstrating his patience that way. That's verse 16. And so in 17, having said all that, I can just see Paul saying, stop the presses. Well, they didn't have presses. Stop the quill. <laughs> to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. And when you know Jesus, the Son of God, and you know what a great Savior He is, you'll know what a great sinner you are. And to the praise of the glory of God's grace in Christ Jesus, we thank and praise the Father, who by the power of His Spirit brings us in the name of the Son into the very throne room of grace. Now, what I'd like you to do for the next week, I'd like you to do it the rest of your life, but I'm, I'm hoping for at least a week, is just every moment you get a spare chance, say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am numero uno. The chief, the first of all. I want you to think about that. Because the next time you get a little bit smug, that's Latin for self-righteous. You know, the, 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 the next time you start to feel a little bit proud of yourself and you're starting to say, look at those people, you know, the next cubicle over, look at them, what they're doing, you know, they're telling those jokes, they're planning their drinking party, oh, they're talking about all kinds of stupid stuff they did over the weekend, oh, look at them. Next time you start to get smug with yourself, just remember, I am the chief of sinners. And it took the death of God's Son to lift me up out of death into life. The second thing I want you to do is this. The next time you get a little bit discouraged, the next time you start to feel like, you know, this is hopeless. Now, I've been struggling so long, and it seems like every time I take a step forward, I take two back, and, and I just, I just, I'm, I'm in despair over what will ever happen in my life. Remember that Christ died for sinners. And you may be the chief. I suggest today you are. But Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm the chief, but Christ died for me. And that means there's no limit to what the gospel can do in your life. So this is your testimony from now on. Anybody says, you, you want to testify, I'll give you 15 seconds. You just stand up and tell them, look them square in the eye. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am chief. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? And Father, we are absolutely blown away by the magnitude of your grace for us in Christ Jesus. 
it is just incredible to us that you would love us at all. But then you love us with the kind of infinite, unconditioned love that sent Jesus to die in our place. And Father, we don't understand that kind of grace, and we can't get our heads wrapped around that kind of love. But Father, we know it's real, and we found it in Jesus Christ. For my brothers and sisters here this morning, Father, I pray that they too might come to understand what it is to know the saving grace of Jesus, Father, every day, every moment, the transforming power of Christ. And Father, I pray for my, uh, our friends who are here this morning and do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, I am praying for the work of your Spirit. Bring that conviction, that godly sorrow over sin, and let it lead to repentance, that we would know that Jesus died for sinners. I thank you for it all. I give you the praise. I give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude our service and as we sing our final song, uh, just respond quickly. Respond obediently to the overture of God's grace. As the Holy Spirit leads you, respond quickly and obediently.